Today on this episode of The Crossover, we will be discussing the best-selling book, The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL, and Neurosurgery, with former NFL player, Rhodes Scholar, and Harvard neurosurgeon, Dr. Myron Roll. Find out how to continually make progress in all aspects of life by focusing on what matters most. Much more on this episode of The Crossover. We're back on. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Myron Roll today about the 2% way. Hey, buddy, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm back. All right, man. Take two. And I'm, I'm going to start from the beginning again. So we'll just just do a brief introduction. Uh, you know, uh, we have Dr. Myron Roll, who is a good friend and colleague of mine. He's a neurosurgeon up in Harvard, uh, someone who I've known over the last five or six years and really grown to admire all of his work. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, his 2% way, his new book coming out, which really summarizes all the amazing work he's done, how he's done it, how his family and faith have really pushed him that way. Uh, for those of you who don't know his story, it's, it really is uh, truly amazing. He was the number one recruit coming out of high school, uh, joined Florida State, graduated in just two and a half years, went on to win the prestigious Rhodes Scholarship, went to the NFL. When he was done with football, went to medical school, was one of the top um, applicants that year. We really tried to get him down to Miami. Didn't work out that way. Went up to Harvard. He's been doing amazing work. You know, I still keep in touch with him. Super proud of all the work he's doing, not only up in Harvard, but out in the Bahamas and um, over in Africa. He's done such tremendous work. Uh, so today we're here to talk about his new book that's coming out next month, um, which we're going to talk about how it leads to anyone in life really improving themselves on a daily basis. Doesn't matter if you're a neurosurgeon, NFL player, road scholar, or anyone else in life, any walk of life. So again, Myron, uh, you know, congratulations on all the amazing work you've done. Tell us a little bit about the impetus to write this book. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Komatar. I uh, appreciate that. Sorry for the, you know, the little uh, internet snafu home now. Um, but yeah, you know, this, uh, this book really was inspired by my, um, uh, my time reading Gifted Hands by Dr. Ben Carson. So we came from the Bahamas when I was around two years old. And in America, my parents wanted me to have, and my brothers, to have some role models. Uh, and they put Paul Robeson, Kofi Annan, Nelson Mandela, and then Ben Carson in front of me. And his story resonated with me. Uh, I just love the fact that he was able to separate two conjoined twins on the, the occipital lobe and have both of them live. I love the fact that he was very studious, had parents that focused on education, uh, had a bit of a temper, but he was, you know, he was just a, a minority achieving success in a field that um, typically didn't see people who look like him. So I used him as my role model, as my leader. And his book opened my eyes to what my possibility could be once football was done, because I know football had a very short half-life and it's a transient experience for all of us, no matter if you're, you know, a first round pick or a seventh round pick, unless you're Tom Brady, right? You can play forever. But <laughs> otherwise, you know, the, the rest of us play for about three years and that's it. So I wanted to have something else I would go to. Neurosurgery would be it. And this book opened my eyes to it, Gifted Hands. And so one day I was walking home from my shift at Mass General Hospital and uh, my wife was, and I were on the phone with each other. And I'm sitting in the lobby of my um, my apartment, and she's like, "You know what, Myron? You got to put you got to put pen to paper. You really have to tell people your story." And I said, "I'm a third year resident. I'm just coming off a shift." I said, "You know, I don't know if it's a time. I'm not sure if people want to hear my story." She says, I, "I do think you can inspire people. I think you can talk about 
this ethos of your life, 2% way, 2% of improvement every single day towards a bigger goal, because your inspiration and your, your movement through life has been one where you've taken small steps, like calculated small steps, and just put your head down, just get small victories every single day towards a better version of yourself, towards your dreams, your goals and ambitions. And so her words really spoke to me. And I said, let's do it. So I started writing my story down. I started using my story arc to tell this, this message about um, a lifestyle mindset to do whatever it is you want to do to unlock your potential. Like you said, whether you're a physician, a football player, an educator, a lawmaker, police officer, businessman, woman, whatever it is, I think the 2% way is just this, this, this approach to life that makes these big, complex problems more manageable by taking small steps every day. So that's really where it started. So you're talking about making calculated um, choices. Tell us a little bit about why Florida State. Obviously, you could have gone anywhere in the country. Schools all wanted you. But everything was very calculated, as you've done throughout your entire career. Why Florida State? Well, so the real answer, Dr. Kumatar, the Miami Herald answer is, uh, <laughs> so, so I was getting recruited by all these different schools, like you, like you know, and uh, a lot of my classmates were telling me I should go to Stanford or Duke, Northwestern, Notre Dame, you know, good academic and athletic sort of powerhouses. Uh, but when Florida State recruited me, my cousin Samari Roll also went to Florida State. I saw that as an opportunity to me. I, I looked at that as a place where if I went to Stanford and did well in the classroom and on the field, they would say, oh, he's another one of our good student athletes. You know, he's, he's pretty good. But if I went to Florida State, they'd be like, oh, he is the student athlete who is balling on the field, but also doing well in the classroom. And we will exalt him on high. So as soon as I touched Tallahassee, touched that on campus, I was on billboards. I was meeting boosters. I was getting pushed to be a Rhodes Scholar, a Truman Scholar, Marshall Scholar. I mean, they were they were putting all their energy and resources into me. And I was like, this is great. I knew it was going to be a good relationship because they were going to get my athleticism, and my athletic ability, but I need to get something in return, which was the ability to try to improve myself as a student, uh, as a philanthropist, as a man, as a leader. And uh, I was able to do that at FSU. Now tell me a little bit, how did you maintain focus, right? I mean, you can imagine that you graduated in just two and a half years. You're playing at the highest level how do you maintain focus on your ultimate goal, right? Because I remember watching you in college and you always said, I want to be a neurosurgeon. How did you maintain your focus and your academic studies amidst playing the highest level of D1 football? Yeah, that's a great question. I think my focus really came from my parents. Uh, you know, when we came from the Bahamas, we left all of our family behind, uh, all of the sunshine and paradise and beach and all that stuff and started over new in South Jersey uh, to create a life for ourselves, And so never was there a time for me to be complacent with this opportunity. I knew it was a chance of a lifetime to be in America, to play football, to get an education. These are things that my cousins, my godbrothers, my aunties, uncles back home in Nassau and Exuma, you know, didn't have a chance to do. And so it was up to me and my family to make sure that we optimize every opportunity. So I, I remained focused. I stayed disciplined. Um, I, you know, I went to church. I stayed away from you know, playing spades and what my teammates would do. I'm not even a good spades player, so I wouldn't have been any help in it anyway. I'm not good at Madden, so I wouldn't have been any help there anyway. So I just kind of stayed focused. And something else I did, Dr. Komertar, which was I think was very helpful for me, and I tell this to my mentees all the time, I told my friends about my goals and my plans. Like my boys who were around me, I said, look, I want to be a neurosurgeon one day. I want to be a leader. I want to be a Rhodes Scholar. And so they actually protected me from some of the distractions and temptations that may have hit other student athletes uh, at FSU. So they were like, hey, there's a huge party going on, but 
Myron's going to be a doctor, so he can't come. Let's leave him home. And I was like, <laughs> all right, cool. You know, I, was, I mean, I wasn't too mad about it because I was like, hey, thank you for appreciating and respecting my grind and my hustle to want to be a true student athlete and get to med school one day. Now, you know, you I mean, you've been so successful and you're you're obviously uber talented. Would you say that your family and your faith are the number one reason for your success? I would. Absolutely. I think God's uh, ability in my life, God's, um, you know, he's working in my life all the time. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Joseph, uh, where, you know, he was sold into slavery, lied on by his brother, put into a ditch, left for dead in a ditch, lied on when he got to the kingdom, put in jail, forgotten about in jail. But at the end of the day, he was still able to keep God's grace and, and God stayed with him. And that's what it says in all the scriptures. So, you know, I just, no matter what challenges I ever went through in my life, I always felt that I had someone there to help me, lead me, guide me, and cover me. So I stay true to my faith, and it's really important to me. And my fa family is, is is uber important as well. You know, we, as I mentioned, coming from the Bahamas, we had to sort of stay close and insulated because there were no other Bahamians around us in South Jersey. Uh, they weren't eating crap, kunk stew, kunk boiled, kunk fried, kunk, kunk salad, kunk fritter, kunk cone. They weren't eating our food. They weren't enjoying our holidays. And so we had to stay very, very tight. And uh, my four older brothers and my parents, my parents were married for 50 years. It's just, uh, it's a blessing to have that sort of uh, support system that buttresses me in all things I do. They've protected me. They've supported me. You know, when I tell them a wild and crazy idea, they're like, okay, Myron, we believe you. We're going to put everything we can behind you and let's go for it. And being the last boy, the, the last of five has been helpful because not only did I get like the runoff of like their clothes and, and, and their swag, I also got like, just, you know, I just got the attention of being the baby where they were like, we want to make sure you do well. And we put all of our focus into you. And, and it was a blessing. My, my brothers and my parents, they're just amazing. And now my wife, you know, of three years, it's, you know, it's just a, a really remarkable thing to, to have family this close and helping you along the way. Tell us a little bit about what the Rhodes Scholarship meant to you and when you first thought about going after it. Was it high school or was it early on in college? It was actually high school, yeah. So I went to a boarding school uh, in New Jersey called the Hunt School of Princeton. And uh, it was right across the street from Princeton University. And I went there and saw this guy named Bill Bradley, who was just a rock star in all aspects, student athlete of the year, All-American, Naismith basketball player of the year, played for the Knicks, senator from New Jersey as well, originally from Missouri, but just a phenomenal, phenomenal leader and role model. And I said, okay, this seems kind of cool. If Bill Bradley did this, maybe I can try to be like him or, you know, get close to him. So let me apply for the Rhodes Scholarship when it's my turn. I saw other people who were Rhodes Scholars from uh, presidents and CEOs and, you know, media moguls and, and, and five-star generals. And I mean, just awesome, really, really leader-driven and purpose-driven people. I said, this is the kind of elk that I want to be around. And so that's where the idea started, actually, high school. And then when I got to Florida State, I talked to the Office of National Fellowships, which is this office designed to help students get these uh, Fulbrights and Marshall and Truman and Rhodes and um, and I went ahead and applied and my junior year, uh, it was one where I either had to take the Rhodes Scholarship after I won it or go to the NFL. And I decided to take the Rhodes Scholarship and earn a master's degree in medical anthropology, get over to Oxford for a year and a half, stayed in shape, played a little rugby, ate some fish and chips and bangers and mash, tried to stay in shape <laughs> as best I could. And then came back, went to the Senior Bowl in Mobile, Alabama, went to the Combine and got drafted much, much later. You see, Dr. Komachow, I put my name into the NFL draft my junior year, and they said I was going to be a first or second round pick. But then when I went to Oxford for that year and a half, my stock dropped tremendously, precipitously. They were like, 
he's not he's not in shape or he doesn't love football or he's been away. We can't really invest in him. So they put me down to a sixth round. I got drafted the last pick of the sixth round, pick number two hundred seven. And uh, instead of making four million dollars guaranteed, I made sixty thousand. But it was all good, and uh, it worked out, and got to live out my dream playing in the league. Yeah, I mean, I would say it worked out really, really well. Hey, let's focus on those three years, though, because I think it's so critical. What life lessons did you learn by playing in the NFL? Well, uh, so it's definitely a business. Definitely a business. I mean, playing college football at Florida State was was fun. It was like a brotherhood. Uh, you knew the next day your teammate was going to be there uh, and you guys were going to be able to support each other. But in the NFL, if I play bad or poorly one game, I'm looking over my shoulder like, who are they bringing in to work out? Because this guy may replace me. And it's just it just felt tight. There's never a time where I felt kind of loose or felt like it was a good vibe. Uh, it was very difficult to sort of uh, mitigate those pressures and that stress. You know, some people, um, you know, when I tell them about the stress of playing football, especially in the NFL, I don't know if they can really appreciate it because, you know, they're watching the game and it looks fun, but there's a lot that goes into it. Understanding game plans, you know, taking the coaching, dealing with the weather elements, dealing with, you know, the pressures of, again, not having a job and then having to pick up and move my family or move myself to another city if I get traded one week versus the next week versus the other. So I think in life I learned about dealing with that pressure having mentors and having people that I can bounce ideas off of to sort of decompress from that sort of situation. And that's helped me be a neurosurgery resident now. You know, when I'm getting to a very difficult situation or a challenging patient, challenging management, I have an opportunity to sort of take a step back, take a breath, maybe a couple heartbeats, and then also talk to people who I feel are very, very close to me. Like one of my attendings, you know very well, Dr. Will Curry, uh, Dr. Brian Nahead, you know, I go to their houses and spend time with them. It's a decompressive sort of element that has worked for me as an NFL player. Now it works for me as a senior neurosurgery resident. I mean, tell me a little bit about the similarities between football and neurosurgery, right? There's a lot of high stress, intense moments, but are there more, is there, is there more of a crossover between the two? Definitely, definitely. We talked about discipline and focus for sure. Talked about pressure, communication. I mean, talking to patients and speaking to them like humans instead of speaking to them like names on a list as you run the list in the morning and you round uh that's important you have to be able to communicate i, I had teammates who are from opalaka you know opalaka opalaka dr komatara you know you got patients or, or family members uh who are coming from you know inner city boston who you know may look different or may have a different condition or may have a um you know a different background but you have to be able to relate you have to be able to communicate and convey your message clearly so that they get the optimized care that you afford to anybody else in the hospital. So communication is something that I learned very much in football, and I, I use it now. I think also just teamwork, you know, understanding that every person has to be uplifted. Everyone, from nurse practitioners, our PAs, our nurses on the floor, uh, our co-residents, the attendings, everyone has to feel like they're part of the mission, a part of the goal. And we actually huddle before we actually um, operate. I'm sure you guys do as well at University of Miami, and that sort of puts me back into, like, the football mindset, okay, we're getting the huddle, we're going to break down, we're going to talk about how we're going to smash these guys in the mouth today, and we're going to ball out on this field. And same thing, I mean, we're not smashing anyone in the mouth in the operating room, but we're <laughs> talking about how we're going to, you know, execute this transphenoidal and do it well and, you know, have, you know, prep out the belly so we can fat pack and all these things. And it's just, it puts me back. So there's certainly a lot of crossover. I tell my fellow athletes all the time, you know, if it's not neurosurgery, think about medicine because there's such such crossover and a seamless transition that you can make from being an athlete, perfecting your traits, 
every day on the field, the weight room, the 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 team meeting room, the the film room, to a life as a physician because it's uh, it's been good for me, and I'm a living, breathing testimony of that. Now let's get a little bit into what's your motivation to give back to your communities. You've really made that such an important part of your career when you really don't have to. And I think it's it's really worthwhile to get into what drives you to give back to your communities, not only locally, but also back home out in the Bahamas. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. I think um, the uh, the drive for me to do that is goes back to my faith. There's a scripture, Matthew 25, 40, in as much as ye have done for the least of these, ye have done it unto me. And so the least of these are those individuals that uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples about, you need to focus on those who are underserved, those who are on the margins, those who are vulnerable, those who are less than or, or, or disadvantaged, disenfranchised. I feel very strongly about this community because I've come from this community. And I, I know what it's like to sort of feel look on the outside looking in when my classmates and teammates had the newest equipment and the newest shoes and were able to take trips on the weekends to, to the Metropolitan Museum in New York City or whatever. And I'm I'm sitting there like, man, you know, we're trying to like keep the lights on at times. Um, but I, I, I feel I feel called uh, to do the work in the operating room and in the hospital as, as a neurosurgeon, uh, but also to extend my my reach and my my sort of um, my goodness to people who may feel like they're boxed out. And uh, that's why I do work in, in Florida. I do work in Massachusetts and absolutely do work in the Caribbean uh, because, you know, I, I see people who, you know, especially in the Caribbean, if you look at it from the outside looking in or the surface, you would think that we have it all together. You know, we have Atlantis, Baja Mar, we have Sunshine, we have Paradise and, and all these wonderful things, the Carnival. But if you lift up the veil, you see some of the same health disparities and deficits uh, that exist in, in inner city Chicago or inner city Dallas or Houston or, or LA, uh, and, it, and it exists there. And so my foundation, the Caribbean Neurosurgery Foundation, and my work as a Paul Farmer, a Global Neurosurgery Fellow now at Harvard has been to correct these wrongs and fill this gap, upscale surgical systems and build neurosurgical capacity in a place that means so much to me and in a place where people sometimes are left out. So I think it started from faith and it's just sort of matured and evolved over time. And I feel very strongly that that's uh, my life's purpose. What is the biggest challenge you've ever faced in life? Wow, biggest challenge I've ever faced in life. Um, that would probably be, uh, Going back to football, I think, you know, balancing uh, or, or making people believe that I was serious about football. Um, you know, I told you about dropping in the draft from first or second round to the sixth round. I've been playing football my entire life since, since I was six years old. And then all of a sudden, when I ha on the precipice of getting to the NFL, now there's a question about my commitment to the sport. And then I don't think my NFL career was very successful. I'll be honest with you. I was a number one player in high school in the whole United States. I was an All-American at Florida State multiple years, one of the best players ever at that school at that position. And then I get to the NFL, and I'm a six-round pick, and I barely sniffed the field. So it was a – I call it a bit of a failure, but in the other end, you know, it could – you know, I, I, I tried to spin it to say, well, I didn't play nine years in the NFL, and I saved myself from getting a concussion or breaking my hands so that, you know, one day I could go on to be a neurosurgeon and do good things in the world and help save lives. Um, so maybe there was some some good out of it, but I think that challenge, that that difficulty, uh, was hard for me to to get get through because football informed my entire life, how I ate, who I hung out with, when I slept, what I wore, and then to break away and be disconnected from that almost unwillingly 
it was like, man, it was very hard, but we got through it through prayer and family. Again, that support system was helpful in, in having me bounce back from that, uh, that downtime in my life. I mean, it's funny how that's a failure, but it's actually a success because that got you to the real part of your career sooner so you can help people sooner, help more people. So, I mean, you list that as a failure. I would say that it's actually a blessing. But um, so let's get into your book now, which is so intriguing. Um, 2% way, basically small, steady, daily increments. Explain in your words, what is that philosophy? Yeah, so that philosophy uh, is, is just that, you know, taking small steps of edification and of improvement towards your bigger goal down the line. You know, we can make our big challenges very manageable by just getting a little bit better, 2% better every single day, being consistent with that message of being consistent with that movement. My football coach at Florida State University, his name is Mickey Andrews, he would challenge us to get 2% better every day on the field. You know, 2% better in our backpedal, 2% better in our blitz packages, 2% better in our ability to disguise coverages. And then he will go onto the whiteboard uh, in the locker room and say, okay, Myron Roll, did he get 2% better today, guys? And, and the guys in the locker room be like, yeah, Roll got 2% better. Or, nah, Roll got 1% better. He loafed on that play. He didn't do as well. And so he was, it was a way to hold us accountable. So I took that sort of ideology and extrapolated to life that anything that I do, anything as far as reading a book or seeing a video or meeting someone, some experiential knowledge that I'm able to accrue, I want to gain 2% from that to uplift and edify myself to the next phase of my life. And and that's why I wanted to share it. I use my story to sort of go through my life and my timeline. And I talk about how the 2% way helped me achieve some of these large tasks in my life, like getting a residency at Mass General Hospital, like starting a foundation, like starting a family, you know, a wife and two kids, you know, all these things that we do as, as, as humans. Um, if you take a, a mindset that's manageable, I think we can accomplish it and, and have success and feel, you know, validated by doing it. Now it's, you know, you, your approach is so unique because in this day and age, people want everything right away. Why, in your opinion, is that boom or bust approach detrimental? And why is it better to kind of just, you know, slow and steady wins the race? Why is that a better approach in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I, I honestly, Dr. Komatar, I feel that uh, that sort of boom or bust or like get it right now, this microwave generation of, I need to see it now. I think that's, that's fleeting and it's, it's not sustainable. And I think it's a bit of a facade. I, I, I look at social media today and if you follow anyone, influencers or, or just, you know, scroll down your timeline, you will see people who think they have it all. They will post that they have it all. It will look like they're, you know, just bawling out of control. You look like they are on top of the world, but in actuality, they're struggling. In actuality, this is not real life. This is not true. And so staying in your lane, putting your head down and getting just a bit better every day, Focusing on the process and those small wins, that to me is a more fulfilling life, right? You won't feel like you are letting yourself down or letting anyone else down because these small victories are what make you happy. These self-affirmations of, you know what, I, I was a little bit earlier today, uh, my punctuality has improved, and I'm going to do a little bit more tomorrow and a little bit more the next day and a little bit more the day after that. And you just see yourself getting better. You can look back and say, you know what, I've truly grown. I'm truly a different man or a different woman than I was a month ago, a year ago, five years ago. And you don't have to compare yourself to anyone else in the generation or your peers or your family who says, you need to do it right now, right away. That's not sustainable. And to me, that is not the best approach to, um, to have a lasting impact and to have a real impact. Now, what about, I mean, you talked about how the NFL kind of brought you down, how you felt that that was a failure, but you obviously turned that into a huge positive. 
And life is hard for everyone, right? Everyone deals with adversity in their own ways. What is your advice to anyone facing adversity? How do you, how do you kind of reset and turn adversity failure into a positive? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think that it's um, it's about people. I, I really do. I don't think we we get through difficult times in a silo. I think we need to activate and access those individuals who love you, who care for you, for who you are, not for what you can do or, or what your name is or how many followers or a blue check mark that you might have by your name on social media. You need to find those individuals who want to truly sharpen you. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. So you need to find those individuals in good times when things you know go wrong, you can access them and activate them. You know they'll be there for you. Uh, I think that's incredibly important. I use that tremendously. I think you also need to take a step away when you do have those difficult moments and look introspectively and really just be 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 your own critic. Be be into yourself and say, okay, what can I do better? What could I have done better? And now what am I going to do to change this? And it has to be me. I can't rely on somebody else to fix something for me. I can't rely on somebody else to hold my hand to get me through a situation. I have to think positive. I have to self-affirm daily. I have to believe that I want to uh, move from this difficult time and uh, continue to um, to grow. And that two percent mindset is is a way to do it. So, you know, there's um there's a little mix. There's a mix of feeling into your and looking into yourself uh, to see what what it was that happened, how you can turn it and spin it to sort of um, you know become a positive for you. Use it as fuel and motivation to move forward. Uh, and then there's family and support staff and friends and networks and neighborhoods and coaches and pastors and people who love and support you that you do need to uplift, that you do need to carry you through those moments. It's not done alone. And it's, uh, it's important that we keep those things in mind. Now, you know, you, you know, people are going to look at you and they're going to say, well, he accomplished all this because he has all these physical traits. You're athletic, you're smart, what have you, but they're not going to necessarily respect your mental fortitude and really recognize that that's what got you to where you are, not necessarily just the physical traits. Explain the importance of mental fortitude uh, and the mental aspect of success as opposed to the physical aspect. Absolutely. Mental toughness, mental fortitude is incredibly important. I think it's probably even more important than your physical attributes. I I, I see myself as somebody who... Uh, able to compartmentalize, able to move past situations, able to have a bit of a short memory when it comes to things that have happened. Now, understand and extract the hard lessons to take from mistakes or missteps or, 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 or challenges, but not dwell on it and say there's more to do. Uh, I will look at, you know, uh, patient situations. Um, when you deal with, uh, with cases, um, you may not perform as well in a surgery. Your attending says, you know, you need to be a little bit more slick with, with how you're handling the tissue or, you know, when your opening needs to be a little bit quicker or whatever the case may be, you know, I said, okay, all right, I can either beat myself up because, you know, I, I'm, I have a high expectation and a standard for how I like to perform as a surgeon. Uh, or I can say, this is motivation. They expect this of me. I expect this of myself even more. And I'm going to raise my rise to the challenge and meet that expectation the next time out. And I cannot wait till we get back into that operating theater so that we can do it again, so that I can show you what I've worked on and how it improved. And the next time, your words will come from your mouth and say, "Mine, you did a good job, Dr. Roll. It was good. That was much better how you were able to, to do this or do that or do that. And that's, what I, that's kind of like the challenge that I put to myself. And so that's all mental fortitude. That's all toughness. It's not wiltering away or, 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 or shying away from adversity and pressure. It's standing up and saying, now's the time to show 
my metal and, uh, and, and be the best version of myself possible. So I, I love those challenges. I really, really do. And that's why, honestly, I always ask for feedback. Not to call out my residents because I have a wonderful group, but not all of us ask for feedback after cases or after patient management, you know, situations after M&M. Like, not always asking for feedback, but I'm always looking for it, good and bad. Tell me what I can do. Coach me up. If I didn't do something well, talk to me about it, and I'm going to fix it next time. Trust and believe because I want to be the best that I possibly can be, not only just for myself, but patients are going to rely on me when I start practicing as an attending. And then obviously when I go back home to the Bahamas where we have limited resources, I want to make sure that um, I'm doing the best I can. I can be the best uh, physician I possibly can. I mean, that grit, I mean, that's the word I would use is grit is just invaluable. And that is way more important than any technical skill, any physical trait, just like you said. Um, You are such an amazing role model for so many people. What's the number one message you would give to people that are looking up to you? Wow. Uh, I would say the number one message that I would give to people looking up to me um, is find uh, find someone who's doing something that you might want to do and then follow those steps or follow sort of the pathway, but add your own little twist of who you are to that pathway. So I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, Dr. Komitar, how Dr. Carson opened up my eyes to like being a successful black man in America. I was like, man, I can do this. He did it. Why can't I? If there's something that you want to do or someone you want to accomplish, seek that person or those persons out as mentors, as role models, as leaders, and see how that journey sort of worked its way through and then how you fit into that schema. Um, You have to do it your way, for sure. I remember playing with the Steelers and Mike Tomlin, you know, Mike Tomlin was like, hey, Mario, what do you want to do after you play football? I said, I want to be a neurosurgeon coach. You know, I want to be be like Dr. Ben Carson. He said, no, Mario, don't do that. I said, what? He said, you got to be better than Dr. Carson. I said, oh, okay. You know, I mean, he was like, really? And, you know, Dr. Mike Tomlin is like, you know, pretty stern. And I was like, oh, man, I was, a little, I was a little scared when he said it. But I know what he's telling me. He was like, look, you can be inspired by Dr. Carson. You can allow his wave and his momentum to lift you. But at the end of the day, it's got to be you that stands on uh, those shores and says, here I am. I'm prepared. I'm qualified. I'm apt. And I'm able to take care of patients and do well and be a leader and inspire and change the world some kind of way and hopefully hopefully save lives. So my, my message would be find those mentors, find those leaders, see where you want to go, unlock that pathway. You put your own little twist into, you know, in, into that pathway uh, and then um, allow that to take you where you want to be. I mean, priceless information. Um, you know, let's just wrap it up. What do you predict or where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years, 20 years? Obviously, you've already accomplished a lifetime of work. Really, what does the future hold for Myron Roll? Well, the first part of the future is beating you in a pull-up contest, um, <laughs> which might be hard. Uh, but um, uh, I, um, you know, I'm going into pediatric neurosurgery. So as I finish these uh, these two years, last two senior neurosurgical residency years at Mass General Hospital, I do my one year of fellowship, um, and then from there, uh, you know, I look to be a, a great pediatric neurosurgeon. Uh, somewhere, um, not sure where, probably half, half or maybe three quarters of the year in America. And then the next half of the year or the next remainder of the year uh, back in the Caribbean and the Bahamas in particular. Uh, I also want to build out my Caribbean Neurosurgery Foundation so that it's, you know, larger, has more expansive. It's got a staff. It's got a network of of, of real, real capacity building tools uh, that could be a model for what other 
island regions like the Western Pacific Islands or just regions in, in general, like so, so, uh, the Southern African development community like Sadek over there and, and other parts of the world can see, okay, this is what a regional block can do if they build neurosurgical capacity and upscale systems and strengthen systems. So that would be wonderful. I'd love to continue to be a wonderful father to my kids, uh, a wonderful husband to my wife, travel a little bit, and uh, maybe another book may come out, but there's a lot on the plate. And uh, I think the Lord has never given me more than I couldn't handle. So I take it in stride and continue to, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing, which is taking care of patients and really being a healer um, in both phases in the operating theater and outside of it. And, um, and try to be the best I can 2% at a time, Dr. Comer, to our 2% at a time. Dude, you are amazing, man. It's always great to catch up. Um, you know, great interview. You are a real example of what, just like you said, eyes on the prize, keep working hard. Don't let anything ever get you down. Slow and steady wins the race. Um, can't wait to read your book, man. Um, 2% way. Everyone should pre-order it. And because you're going to be a famous neurosurgeon one day, I want everyone to know that your first tumor you took out was with me in the operating room. I want full credit. I want full credit for that. You took it out of my operating room. So that's, right. that's what matters. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and I think we were listening to like Roots and like Naughty by Nature. We had a good oh, time. Oh, absolutely, it man. It was good times. It was me, you, and Dr. Ivan. We were listening to good music, uh, helping people. So just remember all the little people one day, buddy, okay? <laughs> I got you. I got you. <laughs> all right, buddy. Have an awesome weekend, man. Great talking. Thank you. You too. Later. Bye-bye.